Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Dr. Golden, we have back yes. on with us for the second time, and we were just listening to Eric Clapton, Change the World. Welcome back to Patricia Adams Live, and we're so glad that you had time out of your busy schedule to stop by and talk to us again. This time, Dr. Golden wants to talk about the emotional healing of men. On his first episode, I really, I know that some people have been listening to it, other people have been dialing in and downloading it and listening to it since we did the first show. So I just know that once again, he is bringing us part two of his journey of healing and the importance of men healing emotionally. Dr. Golden is a professor of philosophy at Walla Walla University. He also serves as director of the pre-law program, and he is the author of 
forthcoming books, Frederick Douglass and the Philosophy of Religion. And he is also working on multiple other scholarly articles for his school and for himself. And I will let him tell you additionally what he is involved in. And I will turn the show over to you. All right. Hello, Patricia. Thank you so much for having me. And um, I'll be stopping from time to time. And uh, please do feel free to interject and ask me questions. I'd rather have this be more of a dialogue than a monologue. And so kindly feel free to interject when you have a question and uh, or if you think there's something you'd like me to clarify for your listeners. Again, I'm very humbled and honored and blessed to be on your show with you today. And I'm so grateful that you would think enough of me and of my story to share, to have me share my story with your listeners. So I am, I am so very grateful and feel so very blessed to be with you this afternoon. So the last time that I was on your show, I had a lot to say about my emotional abuse and my emotional abuse occurred in the context of a marriage and emotional abuse can occur in a variety of contexts. But my story, which I told last time, was about my experience dealing with the abuse from my former spouse, sort of living with the reality that I felt like I was not good enough and eventually began to feel worthless. And then at some point, I got to the point where suicide was a a viable option for me. And so my my healing journey, which is what I want to talk about this time, really began when I was at rock bottom, when I was at the point where I felt totally worthless as a person and where I felt suicidal, I sought therapy just to stabilize myself. And when I did that, my therapist did a lot of work to help me get out of the suicidal ideation. And I did that kind of work for about six about maybe four to six months, I did that sort of work. And then I was, at the time, I was still married. And so I was dealing with a lot of excruciating emotional pain. And one of the things that I I would like to leave your listeners with is that it is very difficult to begin healing from emotional abuse if you are still in the toxic relationship. I'll repeat that. It's very difficult to begin healing from your emotional abuse if you are still involved in the toxic relationship. And so for me, the initial difficulty of healing was that I was still in the relationship. And so a lot of the gaslighting and a lot of the mind games that had destabilized me, despite the fact that I had gone to therapy, because I was still very much in the relationship, 
ended up really hindering my decision-making ability and my ability to get well and my ability to see my own worth. So that lasted probably for about a year and a half or so. And then I got a job offer to go to another part of the country, which is where I am now. And I, it was really something that I did not want to do, but I understood that if I was going to get better, I didn't necessarily have to leave the relationship, which was, was not my idea, but I did have to remove myself from it. So I had to separate from my ex-wife in order to gain some perspective on my situation. The imagery that I like to give is to describe the situation I was in. I would ask your listeners to pretend that they're trying to read a book and pretend that you are holding the book very close to your face. In fact, pretend that the book is pressed up against your face. The pages of the book are open and you're pressing it up against your face. You can't really understand what's happening in the book because it's too close to you. You can't see it. And so what you have to do to rectify that problem is put some distance between yourself and the book. And you'll notice if you're still imagining pushing the book up against your face, imagine slowly pulling the book or pushing the book away from your face until it gets to a distance that's comfortable enough where you can actually read the words on the page. You are now able to understand what's happening in the book because you have put some distance between yourself and the book. And for those people who are listening, who are in toxic relationships, particularly men, if you're in a toxic relationship and you know that the relationship is hurting you, I don't recommend divorces. I think absolutely ought to be a last resort, but there may be a need to put some distance between you and your relationship in the same way that there is a need for you to put some distance between you and the book you're trying to read. Because even as you cannot understand what is going on in the book, because it's too close to you, chances are you cannot understand what's going on in your relationship because it's too close to you. You have to put some distance between yourself and your relationship the way that you have to put some distance between yourself and the book in order to gain some perspective on it. And so my healing began really with a separation that took place after some therapy stabilized me from the suicidal ideation and against my wishes, it wasn't something that I wanted to do, but it was something I felt like I had to do in order to get better because unless I made myself and my emotional well-being a priority, no one else was going to do that for me. And no one is really responsible to do that for me other than me. So I decided to undergo a tremendous change in my life. I accepted the job. I moved. Something I didn't want to do that professionally actually was not a very good move for me but I thought that my health was worth it in the long run. And I don't know if your list, people are listening who are spiritual, if, if you believe in God, if you're Christian, I, for one, 
uh, am uh, a Christian. And so I had a lot of conversations with God about how I really needed him to provide for me in this new space. And I was so serious about my health that I actually reached out to get a therapist before I even had a place to live. So before I took the job and before I decided to move, before I moved rather, I actually had a therapist. And, you know, I want to pause here and say that securing uh, the services of a therapist, if you're a man who is on the receiving end of emotional abuse, is not easy. There is a bias in the therapeutic community, in the clinical community, that in many ways assumes that men are the abusers in relationships. I had to search through about three or four, maybe even five, as many as five therapists before I found one who dealt with the emotional abuse of men. So there aren't a lot of resources out there, clinical resources for men, because our culture and the our cultural biases about conceiving of men as victims of any kind of abuse in domestic or marital or heterosexual relationships is is really has spilled over into the clinical community and it's it's really not a good state of affairs because I had a conversation with one therapist who so much has told me that men could not be victims of emotional abuse. Needless to say, that was not the therapist that I chose. Fortunately for me, I found one who said that she worked with men who were trying to recover from emotional abuse. And it that's where my journey began. So that's where I started eventually I left, I moved and part of my, um, my healing initially was that I, I was diagnosed after about maybe three or four sessions, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder from my marriage. And in fact, the trauma that I had suffered was so bad that my therapist told me that we couldn't really deal with it just yet because my self-esteem was so low that we had to spend about the first seven or eight months of my therapy doing self-esteem work. And so we began doing that. And then as we got deeper into the therapy, I began to realize that I had to accept some responsibility in the way I had been treated. Now, there's a fine line to walk here because a lot of people listening to this may think, oh, well, this is victim blaming. But it isn't victim blaming, really. It's about my self-esteem being so low that I allowed myself to be treated in this way for so long. And so my therapist and I wanted to get to the root of that problem and we we did. We spent a lot of time doing a lot of background work. And what 
we realize, and I think I told you this in the last session that we had. In fact, I think this is how we ended the last session. I referenced a relationship that I had uh, with a sibling that was that was not healthy and that crushed my self-esteem and that that sort of happened prior to my marriage. And it happened during my formative years as a young boy. And I began to realize that in my therapy, that that's what, that was the root of my, of my low self-esteem. And that then it was only then that I could really begin to work on it and think about ways to overcome it. And that's exactly what I've been doing for the past several years. So Patricia, I don't know if you'd like to interject here. I'd like maybe if you could ask me some questions or if uh, people have questions, that would be helpful. And so I'll pause here and see if there's something you'd like to say. Dr. Kim, the one thing that sticks out the most to me is that I think it's really key for anybody who is trying to rebuild their lives or even just find the strength to even make a choice to choose themselves. And that's what you basically have done when you laid out in the first minutes of the show is that you made a choice to choose yourself. And mm-hmm. so I do almost believe that your decision to accept the position that you accepted was predicated upon you being able to find the support that you needed. And Mm -hmm. perhaps that's something that I think is key as well is that I, I can visualize when you were talking, I had a lot of images that came to mind and literally Mm -hmm. it's like raising a house, if you would. Um, you laid the foundation for your recovery, and then you begin to frame the house. Okay, and as you were framing the house, you made sure that you had the necessary supplies and resources that you needed to complete your your house building. So that's how I'm looking at your recovery in this: is that there was a foundation that you laid, and you said, "Okay, I can only continue to build on this if I have the resources." that I require to build this house the way that it needs to be built. Because if if you didn't build a house that is like one of, you know, it was like a custom build and everybody is different and this is, there's no cookie cutter fix that one thing fixes everybody. You know, one approach fixes this person, then it'll fix the next person. Everything that a person will need in order to recover emotionally, physically, mentally, um, health-wise, spiritually, in any shape, form, or fashion, it has to be geared towards you and your specific needs. And that's what I hear you saying to the audience at this particular time, is that if you are going to make a decision to choose yourself and determine Mm -hmm. that you are worth the investment, of choosing yourself. That, that was the first thing. It's like there was a choice that had to be made. It's either you love yourself enough, even with your self-esteem as low as you, you know, were talking about, you still have the ability mm-hmm. to choose yourself, to save yourself. Mm-hmm. And I tell people, I, I think the reality of 
self-care came when we were on a flight and there was turbulence and it said, okay, you know, mask is going to fall, put yours on first before you try to put it on someone else. Because if you pass out while you're trying to do that, then you've lost your life. So the reality of it is, is that people call that being selfish, but that is the order of things that as, as a Christian that we've been taught that we need to love God first, then love our neighbors as ourselves. But because we didn't really get the full understanding of that scripture, we thought that ourselves had to be absolutely last. And in reality, we were supposed to love ourselves after we loved God. And then whatever we had to love our neighbors came after ourselves. So we never are to exhaust ourselves to the point where our cup, our personal cup, our personal um, resources are exhausted. And a lot of us who have gone through this type of abuse and neglect deplete ourselves. Mm-hmm. We deplete ourselves to the point where, you know, we're malnourished. We're spiritually, emotionally, physically, and financially malnourished. It's just like a drought, a famine has passed through your life. And you have mm-hmm. to find that. So I... I want to tell anyone who's listening at this point that if you need to make a change, you need to choose yourself. And in the process of choosing yourself, wherever it is that you decide that you need to go, whatever distance it is that you need to make, then reach out for the resources in advance to make sure that you have certain resources in place. All you did was like, okay, I've got a job offer, but I I don't feel comfortable taking this job offer unless I can find the resource that I believe I need in order for me to recover. And Mm -hmm. you didn't Mm -hmm. wait until you recovered to accept the job offer. You didn't wait until you recovered to make the change, to make the move. You made the change in a broken Mm -hmm. state, but with that, that assurance that you had found the resource that you needed to make a complete recovery. And that is that's right. something. Yeah, yeah, that's something that I would say, um, even for myself, looking back and, and hearing you say that is when I was going through abuse, a, a domestic situation. I couldn't readily leave that situation as much as I wanted to, but when I started looking for a way out, the resources, things that I remember driving down the highway as a passenger in the car. And there was this billboard that we had passed, I don't know how many times, and I had never paid any attention until, uh, to this billboard until that particular day. And I looked up at that billboard, and I said, okay, I can't write this number down, but I've got to memorize it. And I couldn't memorize it all at one time. So every time we would pass that billboard, I would take in some more of that number, take in some more of the number until I got it memorized. And the day that I had it memorized was the day that I used it um, in time enough to rescue myself and my family from that situation. So God is, and, and whatever you believe in um, your, your higher source, I mean, for Dr. Tam and myself, we are both Christians. And so I believe in God, he believes in God. And this is not about us trying to convert you. This is about getting resources out here to you, common sense resource and knowledge to you to say, look, okay, look out, look around you, because there are so many things that are probably flashing right in front of your face. There's so many exit signs, so many warning signs 
flashing in front of your face and you need to start taking notice of them because they could possibly lead you to the resources that you need in order to get yourself and your family to a safe place. So at the end of that, that's why it's like I, I'm not wanting you to have a monologue, but I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm digesting it and I'm wanting to repeat what I'm hearing you say to the people because that that was that was really strategic. That you were invested enough, you loved yourself enough, even at your lowest state, to say, I'm going to need help. And men don't ask for help as a norm. That's they right. don't ask for help. They suffer in silence. Right. They don't report because yeah. of the very reasons that the people that you were looking at other people to provide you with resources, and they say, this doesn't happen to men. Well, it happens to human beings. And that's what I'm trying to bring to the conversation. It's not about your gender. It's about your humanity, that it's not okay for another human being to be subject to that kind of abuse. It's not okay for another human being to inflict that kind of abuse on another person to the point to where they have just become like that elephant that's been trained at the circus. And as as big as they are, they have become conditioned to stay in that environment. Well, Uh when you wake up and you realize that you're better than this, you deserve better than this, your family Uh deserves better than this. And, You said, I had to take responsibility for my part in it. And you clearly said, I'm not victim blaming anybody, but nobody could get you out of that. Nobody could tell you, Tim, you've got to get out of this. Tim, you need to get out of this. And you take action until you agreed with them. It was like once you started to agree that, yes, I need to get out of this, that's when you started to take action. And that's a, that's a sad uh, state of affairs. But most people are like that. Most people are like that, and it, it takes something um, to own yeah. that. And, and I appreciate you for owning that and, and just saying, you know, look, you know, the warning signs were there and everything, but because my self-esteem was so low, I did not act until it got to this point. So Right, right. I, and it was, I want it you was... to pick up. Sure, sure. Um, I'm sorry, Patricia, were you finished? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, that's right, Patricia. So the interesting thing is uh, accepting this job was part of my healing. Uh, It was not a job that I wanted. It wasn't something that I sought out. It sort of fell into my lap. And I, I learned that sometimes things through this experience, I learned that sometimes things that are the best things for us are things that we don't seek out ourselves, but that sort of come to us. And this came to me at a time in my life when I needed healing. I needed to be healed. I needed to be made whole. And that meant that I needed to be removed from those things that were most familiar with me. I had every reason in the world to stay at my old job. I loved my old job. I loved my old university. I loved my colleagues. In a sense, working at my old job was a dream come true. I 
I mean, on paper, it made no sense for me to take this job. I actually took a pay cut, a a very significant pay cut to take the job that I have now. But what I will say is that in taking the job, I understood that if I was going to be healthy, I could no longer maintain the status quo because the relationship as it was constituted was killing me. In fact, I think in a lot of ways I was already dead. I was already dead, not in a physical sense, but rather in an emotional and psychological sense. I was, I was pretty much crushed. My spirit was crushed. My spirit was broken. And without any assurance from my spouse that the abusive episodes would come to a halt, I could not be comfortable. I could not be well in that relationship, which brings me to another point. I don't want anybody to walk, anybody listening to this. I don't want any man listening to this to, to walk away from this radio broadcast or this podcast with the misunderstanding that divorce is somehow a first option. It really isn't. I don't think anybody wants to be divorced. And I think I've said this before, so pardon me if I'm duplicating it here, but I think it does bear repeating. Uh, People don't, I don't think people want to get divorced any more than someone wants to get their leg amputated. But when the doctor tells you that you're either going to die with two legs or live with one, you have some difficult decisions to make. And what I say to men who may be in these sort of toxic relationships and who are looking to get well is this. If you can be well and be married at the same time, by all means, stay married and work it out with your spouse. That's, I think, the best route. But if your well-being is incompatible with the marriage, that is to say, if the only way for you to stay married is to say is to stay emotionally and psychologically sick, then your first obligation is to your well-being, is to your health, is to the soul of yours that God is trying to save if you're a Christian and if that language resonates with you. The point to be made here is that divorce should always be a last resort and it should always come. It should only, only happen when your health and your well-being, when your well-being and your marriage are incompatible. If they are incompatible, if you can get no assurance from your spouse that the emotional abuse from your wife, that the emotional abuse is going to stop, that at some point uh, your wife is going to seek help for her problem and get counseling and make a concerted effort not to be emotionally and psychologically abusive towards you. If you can get those kinds of assurances from her and if it, if you feel comfortable staying in that relationship, then by all means you should you should do so. But in the absence of any of those assurances, as a man, you're no different than a woman 
who is on the receiving end of physical abuse from her husband, and her husband refuses to get help. And her husband says to her things like, if you didn't make me so mad, I wouldn't hit you, which is something in substance that my ex-wife said to me. Well, if you would just lose weight, then I wouldn't be so angry with you. And see, this is the point that I'm trying to make, which is that for men, the bumps and bruises are not visible. For women who receive physical abuse, they are. The bumps and bruises of physical abuse for men, of emotional abuse for men, typically manifest themselves in ways that are similar to things like laziness and being shiftless, not having ambition. And we are too quick in our society to interpret behaviors of men negatively because we're not accustomed to seeing them as victims of emotional abuse, particularly in close domestic relationships like marriage. And so we draw adverse inferences against men for, and we call them lazy and shiftless and trifling and no good. And you don't want to do anything. And the reason why we do that is because we don't see men as victims without, and, and, and because of that, in turn, we don't realize that maybe that behavior is the result of the actual abuse that they're suffering that maybe emotionally and psychologically they're so broken down by their wives that they come off as lazy, that they come off as shiftless, that they come off as trifling, that in some instances men can come off as even being aloof with their children, right? I know men who suffer from this who have confided in me. And these are the kinds of conversations that we have. And what's fascinating to me about this is so many people have said things to me who have heard my story like, oh, well, I would like to hear your wife's side of the story. And immediately I scratch my head and I say, if a woman was on the receiving end of physical abuse from a man, would anyone in the world be interested in hearing his side of the story? Would anyone be interested in collecting information about what she did to cause him to hit her? I don't think so. And because of that, we have a problem because, again, not only do we not see men as victims, but because we don't see them as victims, we automatically assume that their emotional lives don't matter. And so if they claim to be on the receiving end of emotional abuse from their wives, then everybody wants to hear their side of the story. But when there is abuse, whether it be physical or psychological or emotional, there is no other side to the story. Abuse is abuse and it is wrong. And no one is going to search for justification if a man hits a woman. And no one should search for justification 
if a woman berates, belittles, disrespects, and manipulates her husband. And I think that point has to be hammered home. And I, for one, Patricia, will not rest until such time as the emotional abuse of men is taken as seriously as the, as the physical abuse of women. Because it, if we don't take this seriously enough, you're just going to hear about more men committing suicide. You're going to hear about more men deciding that life just isn't worth living. And even the way we talk about suicide, we have a way of exempting ourselves from responsibility for it. I'm not talking about family members of the person who killed themselves feeling guilty. That's something different. What I'm talking about is when we say he committed suicide, we say that in such a way as though he is solely responsible for the circumstances that led him to think his life was helpless. And the reality is we want to avoid responsibility, a collective responsibility and be, and not be our brother's keeper, but we are. And so if we start to take this seriously, maybe just maybe we can, we can re-engage and recreate a culture that has been so devastatingly stacked against men and in favor of men. Maybe, and maybe we can turn it around so that it favors men in some, not that it favors them over women, but in that it's attentive to their emotional and psychological well-being. That I think is, is very important. So I, I wanted to make those points, but, Again, I've been in therapy now for over over four years. I've been in therapy, and over five years. I'm sorry, over five, including when I sought my intervention for for suicide. More than five years, going on going on six years, and it has been a journey for me. It has not always been easy. I have had many days where I've wondered if I was going to make it through all of this. I've had a lot of grief and a ton of loss to process. I basically started my life over uh, when I moved here, uh, but I didn't really start over until after my divorce. And if I could just spend a few minutes talking about uh, that process and, and what that did uh, how difficult that was. So I, I was officially divorced, I think in August of 2016, which was just a little more than three years ago. And it, during the divorce, I was actually, I actually felt okay. It wasn't until after the divorce that the reality of it hit me. And it was something of a delayed reaction. I spent a lot of time grieving, a lot of time crying, uh, a lot of time in anger, a lot of time in in pain. Sometimes the pain was so severe that all I could do after I got home from work was lie down and try my best to uh, to get rest and and to get better. And my therapy sessions were going on weekly at the time, and 
the blessing in it for me, if I may use that term, speaking in, in Christian terms, but the, the, the good thing about my therapy was that my therapist uh, sort of provided a space for me to constructively deal with all of my pain, all of my sadness, all of my emotion. And in addition to that, I have a group of very close friends who sort of rallied around me and supported me. And that's something else important to remember. Those men out there who are listening uh, to another piece of advice or something to keep in mind is that you cannot rely solely on your therapist. You need to make sure that you have a supportive community outside of your therapy that will help you because your therapist can't do this alone. You need to work on cultivating relationships with people who genuinely love you and who genuinely care about you. And the friends that I lost during the divorce were friends that have really been replaced by other people who have stepped up to the plate in a big way and really been supportive of me. I'm, I'm fortunate to not just have one or two. I could honestly say I probably have about five or six people who I could call if I was really feeling bad during that time period and who would lift me up and, and give me good counsel and really help me along my way as I limped through and stumbled through all of the grief and all of the sorrow and all of the heartache and pain of a divorce. And the one thing I'll say, and then Patricia, after I say this, maybe you can come back on and we could talk some more or you could make a few more comments. At my lowest point in my grief, some days it was hard for me to even get out of bed after my divorce. As low as I was, I can remember being at some of my lowest points and realizing that as badly as I felt while I was grieving after my divorce, that pain paled in comparison to the pain that I felt in my marriage. And if there was one thing that kept me going during that period of healing, it was the reality that as bad as I was doing, grieving, my, grieving the loss of my marriage and facing all these major life changes, as much pain as I felt during that time, that pain still was nothing in comparison to the pain of being married and being on the receiving end of emotional abuse from my wife. And so that, that reality is really what has seen me through. And now I can say with some, with some clarity that I'm, I'm pretty much on the other side of this thing and that the the worst of this is behind me. My therapist often has likened grief to a large pitcher of water. And she would tell me there's going to be days, Tim, when you just have to let it spill out. But she said, if you imagine yourself holding a pitcher of water 
and you allow it, some of it to come out every now and then, and you pour it out, eventually one day you're going to try to pour something from it and it's going to be empty and you can turn it upside down and nothing will come out. And I think I'm at that point now, as far as grieving goes, I think the grieving has period has passed. I I'm still standing. I'm on the other side of it. And I cannot say that it was easy. I cannot say that I recommend it as a first option. But what I can tell you is that I am as healthy now as I ever have been at any time in my life. And I have my, I have God to thank for that first and foremost, but I also have my therapist and a wonderful group of friends, close friends, very close friends who, and and my family as well, who have shown me uh, love and support that I can't even put into words. And so to the men who are listening my journey of healing has been a journey that I have not taken alone. I've had people help me again, from my therapist to my family and friends. And it's just important to keep that in mind. There is a light at the end of the tunnel and no, it is not an oncoming train. The birds will sing again. You will wake up and see the sunshine and life will be full of all the hope and the promise that you were deprived when you were in that toxic relationship. And as again, I'll I'll emphasize this one more time. If you can be healthy and be married at the same time, by all means, stay married. But if your well-being means that your marriage has to end, then your marriage has to end. And so I don't know, Patricia, if you wanted to comment or come back in, it'd be great to talk with you a little bit. I'm here. I am here. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a lot. That was a lot. Mm -hmm. And that was powerful to say the least. And, the one thing that I can honestly say is that if there is a man listening to this right now, the lie of society, and that's what I'm going to call it, the lie of society is, is that you have to go it alone, that you have to suffer in silence because you're a man, because uh, the stigma, the shame, the the un the people who are unwilling to believe your suffering are a part of the plan. And on on yesterday I was interviewing someone and this came to me is that how the enemy comes and, and we talked about this on your first time on the show about isolation. Is that mm-hmm. the strategic thing is to disconnect you from any source of reality, any source of who you are, who you know, who you are as a person so that they can recreate a reality for you that is alter of what you used to be and what you're accustomed to. 
and then you begin to believe that, well, this is what my life is supposed to be like, you know, because we we um we make it super deep, super religious and say, well, you know, when you leave your family and you cleave to your wife or you cleave to your husband, this is how it's supposed to be. So you create a new life, you create a new reality, you create a new norm, and this is how it's supposed to go. And I remember hearing a Christian comedian say, happy happy wife, happy life. And I, I, I did not like it when he said it, and I still don't like it um, when I think about it because it's a lie. It, it's a lie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not based on scripture. It's a lie. It's, it's simply a man waving a white flag and saying, I surrender. I'm not going to try to have my own voice. My voice is your voice. And you tell me what to think, how to think, and just so that I can keep the peace. And it, 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 it's, it's how men are built because you can still go to the scriptures and it says in Proverbs that it's better for a man to dwell in the corner of the top of the house <laughs> than to be in the mm-hmm. whole house mm-hmm. with a contentious woman. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to deal with that. And the fact that men have maybe, say, 2,000 words in their vocabulary or their ability to articulate it during a conversation compared to a woman who has 6,000 words at her disposal. So she can out-talk you. She can out-argue you. She can out-think you around whatever it is you're trying to say. So you can be snared and trapped, and you just wave that flag. You know what? It's not worth it. I would just rather give up. I would just rather give up and you keep surrendering, you keep surrendering. And in my mind, I'm thinking about David and Goliath when they were engaging in battle and Goliath told David, you know, come over here, come up, come on, come on over here. And David said, no, you come to me. And it's all about ground, how much ground you give up. Because David wasn't willing to give up any ground. He had his boundaries and they were set. And that's where the issue comes from is that when you allow someone to infiltrate and break your boundaries, then they can pummel your city. They can take over. They can dominate. They can dictate the conversation. They can dictate how things are supposed to go uh, their way and not your way. And it's all about boundaries. So once you surrender your boundaries, it's, it's a downhill battle from there. And it's only until you restake your boundaries and began to take back your territory, began to push back and reestablish your original boundaries and then began to then take advancement in your own life. And I've had several conversations with men, and they'll say, well, I'm not going to, I know that they're suffering, I know that they're dealing with this and this and that, but if they need my help, they'll call me. I'm like, "Where, where do you get that from? Where is it that? A man will not reach out to another man to ask him how he's doing or to interject anything into his life because if the man wants me in his life, he has to ask me in. And it's not scriptural at all. It's not scriptural because just you, as you said, you know, being your brother's keeper, he says that, you know, we are our brother's keeper. So it's like if you see your brother overtaken, overtaken, overtaken in a fault, go to him. Go to him, not wait for him to come to you. You go to him. And yeah, and, and Patricia, you, if I, then, Patricia, if yes. yeah, Patricia, if I could just inter, if I could just interject real quick, just to say something mm-hmm. along these lines, we encourage women to do this. 
We yes. we live in a society and in a culture that tells women to share their emotions and to yes. share how they're feeling. But we but we discourage men from doing it, right? Exactly. And as you so exactly. nicely pointed out, because of the stigma of associating um, that kind of emotional uh, intelligence with weakness or with something feminine, we we stifle men. And I can't tell you. I mean, I've I've got a lot. I've heard a lot of people say things about me like, "Oh, that that TED talk made you look weak. Like it made you look really weak as a man. How are you as a man going to stand up and say something like that?" And and see, that's because people are too steeped in these cultural and social stereotypes, and they're they're completely making my point when they react that way because they're showing an inability to recognize the inner lives of men, their emotional and psychological condition. So I just wanted to, to interject and make that point. Yes, and that's exactly right. It takes strength. It takes courage to do that. It doesn't show weakness. It doesn't make you look weak. It makes you look weak in the eyes of people who believe that lie. So you believe what you've been taught. Where did it come from? Where did it originate from? Um, where did it become something that a man had to suffer in silence and a woman could go public? Where did it come from mm-hmm. that a man could not speak up, but a woman could speak at the highest mountain and everybody believed her? I've, I've watched uh, so many uh, different stories where one woman screams, you know, help, help, help. You know, I, I'm being held hostage. I'm being held you know, against my will, and, and people come running to the rescue, but in reality, she wasn't being held against her will, and people ended up dying, because it's like if you hear a damsel in distress, you automatically come running, but you don't know the backstory. You really don't know the backstory behind what's really going on, because we take it that only this stuff happens to women. It does not happen to men. It does not happen to yep. men. And because yep. it does not happen to men in their minds, then when you say that it happened to you, then you challenge their reality, and they don't want to change. They don't want a different reality. They don't want the truth because the truth is that's it right. does happen. I lived with it. I grew up with it. I witnessed it, and that's why I, I, I lend my voice to this conversation because I know what I know, and you can't tell me that I didn't see it. You can't tell me that I didn't experience. You can't tell me how it made me feel as a child to watch it happen. You can't tell how it makes me feel right now. So for me, I have given voice to every person of every gender on my platform. And for me, it's not about your gender. It's about your humanity. And until we break it down to its lowest common denominator and say no human being deserves to be treated like this, if this was mm-hmm. a dog that was being treated like this, a horse or any other animal, you would have people absolutely at arms saying, oh, how dare you, this poor helpless animal, this poor helpless animal, how dare you treat them like that? But in reality mm-hmm. is that when you take a man and you emasculate him, I mean, you literally, mm-hmm. you may not have, have physically cut off his male genitalia, but you have cut it off spiritually, emotionally, and mentally to the point where this person has retracted from who they really are. 
and they become right. this cowering person. You see them in public, and they look the part of a man, but when they're in this abyss, and I call hell, when they're in this abyss of hell, they become this person that you would not recognize, that you would not even and, understand. And, yep, that, that's right, Patricia. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just wanted no, to interject no, this fine. point, too. Because what you're describing is so accurate, and I just want to make this point, which is that a lot of a lot of for the conservative Christians who are listening that uh, complain about divorce in terms of the wedding vow that says "till death do us part," understand that our interpretation of the word "death" in the marriage vow is far too narrow. That is to say. Death does not only mean physical death. Death means that if I am dying, if my spirit is dead and broken, if if my if I have been browbeaten to the point where I feel worthless, I am dead. Yeah. I am literally dead. I am I appear as a man, I walk as a man, I I am physically perhaps male. But I am no man if my spirit is gone from me. And if my spirit is gone from me, then I am dead. And if the wedding vow says until death do us part and death is expanded to include the emotional and psychological, now all of a sudden divorce in the, in the circumstance of emotional and psychological abuse or physical abuse for that matter, ceases to be a transgression of the marriage vow and is, is instead compliant with the marriage vow. Because when you're dead and it's clear to you that your spouse has no interest in helping you effect a resurrection back to yourself, back to your health, back to your well-being, then I'm afraid that you have fulfilled the marriage vow because you stayed together until death do you part. And if you part, parting by death doesn't just mean physical. It also means emotional and psychological. So I just wanted to make that point. That was deep. That was deep. deep. Oh, my goodness, that was deep. Okay, I really am asking you to restate that because if you are in a marriage, if you're in a relationship, however you're in this relationship with someone and you are dead as a result of this relationship, then the marriage and the relationship vows have been broken already. That's right. They, they've That's already right. been and broken it's, it's, because there is nothing required of you to continue right. to allow yourself to be dead, physically, mentally, yep. emotionally dying, decaying like a zombie. You are, you are walking around as the living dead. You're on autopilot. You're going through the motions, but you are absolutely, and, and that's what I believe sin, sin steps in. And we, we talk about um, when you know, God said, don't eat of this because the day that you do this, you surely die. They were talking about, well, Satan says, you know, you're not going to die, die, whatever. It's not a physical death. It's like a spiritual death. When you step into and you entertain things that are not of God, that are not for you, that are against you, 
because he says mm-hmm. that he is more than the world against us. But if you are entertaining individuals and situations and circumstances that are working against you and not for your good, then you are entertaining death. You are mm-hmm. entertaining death, and as you eat that death, you are surely dying. There's no way that you That's can right. live eating death every day. If everything you do is about death, if, if the words that somebody is speaking to you is killing you, if the things that you are experiencing are killing you, then you are being fed death. There's no life in that. There's no life in that. And mm-hmm. for anybody, whatever situation you find mm-hmm. yourself in, I'm talking to people um, on a regular where people are asking and saying, you know, my children don't want anything to do with me because of the way that I treated them when they were children. How do I get my children back? Or I hear a child say, who is now an adult, and say, you know, I, I really am torn between trying to reconcile with my mother or my father, and they've done X, Y, and Z to me, okay? Um, mm-hmm. and, and I say, it's not really required of you. It's not required of you. And then I tell them about some of my story, and I say, it's not required of you because when God says to forgive, he doesn't mean that you have to stay engaged with that person. So if God allows you to forgive and you forgive them, it doesn't mean that you have to be in relationship with that person. You can forgive somebody that's right. and walk away. And that's, that's right, because there's okay, a well, difference. If I forgive them and you forgive me, then why don't you stay? Well, hello, you know, your actions don't aren't congruent. You know, I forgave That's right. you, but and you there, to do the same thing. And, and what you're pointing to, Patricia, is so important because, again, for, for the Christians who are listening who may have hyper-conservative backgrounds that tell them to forgive, yes, but there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's what you're pointing to. So forgiveness only takes one person. You can forgive a dead person. Forgiveness is what God requires of us. But reconciliation requires two people. So, for example, and this, again, will work for those who are listening that may have a Christian orientation, everyone in hell will have been forgiven, but no one in hell has been reconciled. And that's the difference, that God has forgiven all of us, but all of us will not be reconciled to him. And it's reconciliation that is that is what relationship requires. So, for example, in a situation where you're in an abusive relationship as a man and there is no nothing forthcoming from your wife that tells you that the emotional and psychological abuse and manipulation is going to stop, then you absolutely have a moral and spiritual obligation to forgive her, but you have no moral and spiritual obligation to remain in relationship with that person unless there is genuine reconciliation, which cannot occur if your spouse, if your wife thinks that she has done nothing wrong. And that's the real problem because if a man refused to get help for his anger or his alcoholism or whatever it was that was causing him to beat his wife. His wife may forgive him, 
but his wife is under no moral or spiritual obligation to remain in a relationship or to reconcile with him because reconciliation is made impossible by his refusal to see that he has a problem. And it works the same way with a man who's on the receiving end of emotional abuse. If your spouse or your wife does not think that what she is doing is wrong, if she thinks that you, well, you must, you must deserve it for something that you said or did. If you hear statements like that and you don't hear anything forthcoming that sends you a strong message that you're actually being taken seriously and you can assure yourself that the marriage will be a safe space for you where you can be yourself and thrive and be who and what God has called you to be, then by all means, not only should you not stay, I would argue that under those conditions, you have an obligation to end the marriage and move forward because you are better off alone and with your peace of mind than you are together with someone and emotionally and psychologically and spiritually dead. Exactly. And when somebody says, well, you said you forgave me, okay, well, along with giving someone, it also is a call for change. That person has to change, and you have to see that change. And if they are constantly repeating the same offense, well, you can't bring that up. You know, you said you forgave me, so I did, so what, I did 5,000 things to you, and you said you forgave me of those things, and so now I do one new thing. This is a whole new thing, so you have to forgive me of that. No, because your actions are not congruent with what your words said. So when your words line up with your actions, then there is a possibility for reconciliation. But if you are using that as an excuse, and that still takes me to, it says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Shall we continue to do the things that we know we should not be doing because we know that we can go and we can ask for forgiveness? No. Because at the end of the day, there is a penalty to be paid for that. Whether you pay it in this life or the next life, there's a penalty to be paid. And to be paid. And it says, you know, that you reap what you sow. So reciprocity. Reciprocity. I see mm-hmm. women who have had damaged relationships with their children, and they cry because, well, they need to let my past go. They need to let, you know, let go of that. You know, I'm not. I'm not doing that anymore. You know, I'm, I'm over that. I'm done with that. And so now all of a sudden that they turned a new leaf, immediately everything is supposed to come up roses. Well, it doesn't happen that way because somebody chose to forgive you, but they still have the memories of what has happened to them. They're still bearing the scars. They're still trying to heal. They're still trying to recover. And you cannot build and rebuild on sinking sand. You cannot do that if you have not laid a stable foundation that you can build on in and have a relationship. You cannot build on something that's broken and shattered. If you will not make a consistent, concerted effort to change and consistently work towards that change and not consistently say one minute, you know, well, I said I was going to do it, but it's hard, or, you know, you did something and you made me digress, or it's your fault that I didn't keep my word, or whatever. Am I seriously? So at Mm. the end of the day, 
is that you have men and women who are not being treated equally in this society, and we perpetuate mm-hmm. this. And, and I know maybe mm-hmm. you saw this on the news where the young man, uh, both of John, his murder trial came to an end, and the officer that killed him was sentenced. And people took arms because his brother went and hugged her, and he was insistent that he be allowed to hug this officer that had killed his brother. And I understood his level of, of agony because I saw it in him. I, I recognized it. I've been there, done that, is that for him not to be able to do what he did, the pain of what happened to his brother and unforgiveness and bitterness would have destroyed him. If not physically, it would have destroyed him on every level because that kind of betrayal, that kind of pain, if, if you cannot forgive it, not because you're trying to get in good with God, but you need it for yourself. You, you have to forgive, but at the same time, there is still justice. There is still a need for justice. And, you know, some people say she didn't get enough justice. You know, she didn't suffer. She's not going to suffer enough or whatever, but at the end of the day, Something was done that had not ordinarily been done. Well, now we are dealing with a situation where we've got women who are being held accountable. And I brought that up because she was not just a a police officer. She was a woman. And she was being held accountable for her actions or her lack of actions. And we need more of that because women have been getting free passes. They have been getting passes in society. You can trace history. And with you being the, you know, the professor on the line, is that you can trace back mm-hmm. to history where women have cried wolf, where women have done all kinds of things, and they've gotten a pass because they were women. Well, then you can look over and and, and and yeah. No, no, no. I was just going to say specifically, and this is interesting because there's a racial dynamic to this too. But mm-hmm, the history mm-hmm. you're talking about is the history of white women, right? Mm-hmm, who mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. on the receiving end of special treatment from courts of law and so forth, and they're invested with a degree of credibility, they are believed, right. and they are embraced, and they are loved, and they are hu- they are hugged, and so forth. And mm-hmm. these are these are real these are real social and cultural problems that are rooted in American history. So that's a good point you're making. Yeah. Yes, and that is why it's like to silence men, to silence men. You you have white men who are being silenced. You have black men. You have Hispanic men. You have men of every nationality who are being silenced, and yes. they are powerhouses in the public, but at home they're not. So That's right. now as That's I right. work in – corporate America and I navigate, you know, the world that I'm in where it's like, you know, male dominated for the most part, I can see Mm -hmm. how maybe some men as supervisors are bad supervisors because Mm -hmm. they don't have power and authority at home. So when they come to work, you know, Mm -hmm. they exercise that power and authority, but they don't always do it well. I'm not saying all, but I'm just saying for the most part, there is, there is, something that's askew sometimes in that. And then when you have a woman who's in leadership in the public eye, how she navigates her power and authority is different 
Okay, but most times if she's that powerful in public, she's also that powerful in private. So mm-hmm. it's, yes. it's like there is, you know what I'm saying, there is, there is this breakdown where until we stop making it about gender, that's why I keep saying is that I'm having this conversation with men, I'm having this conversation with women, and I'm saying we have to stop making it about gender and make it about humanity. Is that if you can dehumanize a man and say, just like um, in slavery, you think about the stories that we were told about how the babies and the wives and and the mothers were torn away from men and men had to stand and watch their women being raped and their daughters being raped. And they, the women had to in turn watch their men being abused and hung and lynched and set on fire and hung and quartered and, and everything. And now we come to this table that we're at and, and, So Martin Luther King said that he wanted his children to be judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. We don't judge people by the content of their character. We don't judge them uh, by the content of their behavior. We judge them by their skin and by their gender. And we still have not come to the table to where people judge you by the content of your character. That if your character does not line up with who you say you are, then there ought to be a consequence for that if you are causing harm to another human being. If, you are, if, if, a, if a person uh, throws a dog or a cat off of a bridge and another human being sees it, they report them, and that person gets in trouble. You throw the body of another human being off a bridge, and nobody sees nothing. I can't tell you how many stories of down in this area where bodies are turning up in the river. And nobody sees anything. Nobody knows anything. But let somebody throw a dog or a cat or something off the bridge, and plenty of people see that. Why is that? Why, why is that? Okay? And it's always look for the man. Look for the man. Well, women are just as capable of doing these kinds of things mm-hmm. and of yes. causing these kinds of things to happen. So I'm simply saying as a woman, I grew up in a household where I saw men who were being abused. The, the woman in the house where I was raised for the most part of my life, I was adopted into this family. I didn't find out until after she was deceased that she had had a first husband and she had murdered her first husband and she got away with it, okay, because Man. she said he was beating her. Well, when I saw how she treated her husband, there was no way – as in my mind, that this man was beating her. She killed this man, and she got away with it, okay? Now, this is a black woman, and this is happening probably, you know, 50s, 60s, or 40s or something, that she did something like this. Mm-hmm. And because I mm-hmm. saw too many times where she attempted to kill this husband, okay? Mm. So if she was capable of the things that I saw her doing, it made sense to me when I heard the story that she had killed her first husband. And she would have, you know, killed this one if she had lived long enough to do it. So, you know, she died before he did. But still, he didn't, um, the, the way that he was treated, it was so humiliating. It was so humiliating. And it would happen in public. And I would get humiliated and, and mistreated in public. And then the other sister it was like, you know, sisters. They, they were sisters in this, and they mistreated their men. But they were upstanding yep. citizens in the community. 
You know, they were well respected in the church. They were well respected at the school system, the PTAs and all this kind of stuff. And in local government, Mm -hmm. they were respected women, but they were heinous Mm -hmm. and private. Mm -hmm. And so you can't tell me that I'm lying because this is my story. I lived it. That's so right. That's why and, and I that's, believe that I'm lending my voice to the conversation now. Yeah, and and Patricia, I just want to say thank you again so much for having me on your show and for for allowing me to spread this word. I I certainly hope that this broadcast was is as popular as the first one. I hope that word gets out and word gets around because uh, I would love to come back again to discuss another Yay. subject. Uh, the subject Yay. that we're talking about now is an interesting one because there's, again, there's a racial dynamic to it, and I'd love to come back on and, and talk about that. Perhaps we can talk off the air about uh, about that topic. And I just want to say thank you so much for allowing me this space and this opportunity to raise awareness about a journey of hope and healing. And just as my last word, I'll say to the men who are are listening again, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and no, it is not an oncoming train that there is something there for you at the end that it really is better to live on a housetop than it is to live uh, with uh, a woman who is hurting you. Uh, a person who is causing you harm. Uh, And do I recommend uh, departure from your marriage? No, I don't recommend it. But what I do say is that if you cannot be married and be healthy at the same time, you must choose your health. And so I hope that my story today has given you hope as you listen. I hope that if you're not listening now, but you listen some point in the future, I hope that it brings you uh, encouragement and inspiration and just know, uh, and Patricia, you said this so well, we can argue facts and figures, but no one can argue with you about your story. Your story is yours. It belongs to you. It is your experience. Tell it to someone today. If you're a man who is grappling with emotional turmoil and emotional abuse and manipulation from your spouse, seek refuge in someone today. Reach out to find a therapist. Reach out to, if you're a Christian and you go to church, reach out to a men's ministry group at your church. In part, that's what helped save my life when I was at the brink of disaster So reach out, tell somebody, there is no shame in telling it how you feel. Tell how you feel, tell your story often, tell it honestly, tell it clearly, and tell it passionately. And I'm a firm believer that if enough men start to do that, then we can change the culture in a way that will make it as friendly to men as it now is to women as far as sharing one's emotional well-being in the interest of one's emotional health. So, again, Patricia, thank you very much for having me. I'm so humbled, I'm so honored, and I'm so blessed. And I look forward to talking with you again real soon. Yay! 
he's coming back, y'all. He's coming back. So stay tuned for the next episode. And thank you again, Dr. Golden. And I want to just say that if you are a man and you are in a man's life and you have knowledge that this man is in distress, you have an obligation to go to him. Don't sit back and say, well, he hasn't invited me in and I wouldn't want somebody to come barging into my life. You have an obligation to go to your brother and restore him. And if he won't hear you, you have an obligation to go back again with another person and try again to restore him. You are your brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. Let's be about keeping our brothers. Until the next time, if I can change the world, I would. And all I can do right now is do what I'm doing until I can do the next thing. And when I do the next thing, I'm going to do that thing. But right now, I'm saying to you that you can have a life after a difficult life. There is life after trauma. There is life after you have endured hardship. You do not have to make a decision to end your life because there is life after. But if you are, if you are contemplating anything coming anywhere near the thought that you would rather not be alive than feel the pain that you feel and know that you are not alone, please call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Reach out for help. Reach out. Go to a local hospital. Tell them how you're feeling. Check yourself in. Whatever you have to do, but you have to stay alive because the best is yet to come. Thank you again for being on Patricia Adams Live, Dr. Golden, and we will schedule you for the next episode real soon according to your schedule. And again, Men's Emotional Healing with Dr. Timothy J. Golden on Patricia Adams Live. Let's change the world. Speak up. Speak up. It's time to speak up. Thank you. God bless. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia. God bless you, too. I'll be in touch. Yes, sir. Bye-bye.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.